And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, October 27th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this Air Force technologist has helped spread innovation everywhere. Plus, NIST researchers take on software supply chain questions. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, more than 200 employees at Homeland Security's Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction office might be reassigned. That's because time is running short for Congress to reauthorize the office. Its authority terminates December 21st. For an update on the situation, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with the Assistant Secretary for the CWMD office, Mary Ellen Callahan. Obviously, it's a complicated congressional environment right now. We have bipartisan and bicameral support. It's just hard to figure out how to fold in this reauthorization into that compressed legislative schedule. The reauthorization language is unusual. CWMD's office will terminate unless the language is reauthorized. And so we're explaining the value proposition that is the CWMD office, how integrated we are with our DHS components, uh, how we support our components, providing them equipment, training, technical assistance, and expertise, and how we also are working with our state and local stakeholders that comprise Almost 40% of the U.S. population are supported by us. And then the interagency piece, including supporting um, being the primary point of contact for significant initiatives by the Biden administration, including NSPM 36, which was in the event of a terrorist incident, and NSPM 19, which is relating to countering weapons of mass destruction. It's a really important issue. I think there's strong support that it remains an important issue. Our conundrum is how to get it onto a legislative schedule, given today's timing and where we are on the Hill right now. Is the hope the most realistic path it being attached to something like the NDAA, or is it, is it too early to say at this point? I am not a legislative expert, so I am leaving that to my colleagues. I'm just talking about the value proposition with meetings with our congressional stakeholders, as well as our state and local um, stakeholders as well. And you said the office terminates, I think, without reauthorization. I mean, Mm -hmm. what what does that mean? What does that actually look like? Essentially, everyone will have to pack up and go home on December 21st? As I mentioned, the language that was crafted to create CWMD almost five years ago had this unusual language that said the office will terminate. The expectation, I think, was that this would be reauthorized in the ordinary course of business. And I think if we had an ordinary course of business, that would have happened. But what we are doing is we're doing contingency planning in the unfortunate event that we are not reauthorized. What we've done is 90 days out, we informed our state and local stakeholders. That includes our Securing the Cities uh, partners, as well as our BioWatch jurisdictions, and said, hey, this is a possibility. If it is a possibility, that funding is going to be cut off as of the date of December 21, five years since its passage. We also wrote to our contracts, to our teams with whom we have contract relationships, including the national labs, saying the same thing. We also, Justin, are working on looking at contingency reassignments 
for my 234 staff. That's actually my priority is making sure that they have a job if we aren't reauthorized and that they can continue to be a federal employee on December 22nd. That involves working closely throughout the department with the secretary, deputy secretary, and uh, directorate of management supporting us in placing us in open positions to which somebody would be qualified. The qualifications have to be minimal qualifications. This is to make sure they have a job as of December if indeed we are not reauthorized. Been working really closely with Chief Human Capital Officer and the Undersecretary for Management to effectuate this. This management-directed reassignment would be the largest management-directed reassignment the department had ever done. So there's lots of moving pieces, there's lots of processes, but it's important that we get this right for our employees. And we just talked to them about this last week. They are going to get some uh, individualized options based on series and grade for which that they can rank their requests. These would be open positions in the department that have been held open in order to prioritize CWMD employees. As of November 17th, they should make their selections and may learn their tentative contingent reassignment. And then as of December 17th, which is the beginning of the pay period before our termination date, those individuals would then depart the office of CWMD and go to another place within the department. Wow. So yeah, that sounds like a lot of, of work here. I mean, it, it, are most of those 234 employees within the national capital region? And you know, are, are you confident you can find a reassignment for every single one of them? Um, you know, how, how is how do you see this playing out in practice? It has been complicated, but we're really devoted to it. And as I said, we've gotten leadership from the secretary, assistant secretary, everybody has uh, instructed people to lean in. Um, the majority of our workforce is in the national capital region. We do have several significant um, leaders who are outside the national capital region. We are looking at their jurisdiction as one of the factors. So I mentioned series and grade. We are also looking at region. Uh, we have some folks who are uh, designated as remote, but they are in the NCR, we cannot guarantee that they would get a remote placement, but we are doing everything in our power to get them placed in a job description, series and grade, as well as region that they, they can qualify for. We have some folks outside the NCR, as I mentioned, and we're looking to place them as well regionally. And of course, we have some very unique skill sets. I have multiple nuclear physicists on my staff. I have chemical engineers. I have, um, you know, veterinarians who are looking at biosurveillance for human, plant, and animal health. So these are unusual positions that we're really leaning forward to make sure we can find a place where they can be productive federal employees if indeed CWMD goes away. It's been a lot of labor, but it's our top priorities. Got it. I mean, and is there any sort of plan for if there is a last minute reauthorization 
for to pull those folks back to CWMD or if there's, you know, a reauthorization after the termination date. I don't know how far this contingency planning has gone uh, at this point, but it <laughs> sounds pretty comprehensive well, uh, given the situation. It, it, it has been a lot of time. As we understand it from a legal perspective, if we have a management-directed reassignment of staff and they depart the office of CWMD on December 17th, we cannot then pull them back. It's also not fair, candidly, to my fellow components who have held open offers and, um, and jobs to help place my team. What we would have to do, as I understand it, is if we are not reauthorized until after December 17th or even the 21st, we would have to re-stand up the office and re-compete the positions. There might be a little bit of flexibility in there, but my understanding is there's not much. And so if we aren't reauthorized by the time folks leave the office, the labor to stand us up would be exponentially more than the contingent planning that we've been going through right now. And if there is a job that is open that needs filling somewhere else before December 17th or even even earlier, are you going to let folks go just to keep them within DHS versus, you know, losing them outright potentially? How are you handling that, that aspect? That's a great question. We've been having very candid conversations in the weekly town halls I've been holding about reauthorization. The contingent reassignment is to give a lifeboat to folks to make sure that they continue as feds, they don't have a break in service, and that they can find a job that is at least within their series and grade. We are starting to see some slight attrition of folks who have gone onto the market and have looked for their own jobs in order to leave. We've had a couple of people who have left, and I know other people are looking at it or considering retirement or other exit options. I have encouraged them to stay around because I feel very passionate about this mission and I feel that it's an incredibly important time for this office to continue. With that said, I understand that people have to make choices on their own. I think the closer we get to December, particularly uh, the latter part of the month, the more we're gonna see people exiting the office at their own will. These contingent reassignments are about, as I said, lifeboats. We are also seeing, Justin, attrition among our contractors as well. We've lost um, several contractors already who have moved onto other contracts that have more certainty and more clarity. Again, these contractors are also experts in their own field, and they are very valuable, and the market is very hot for them as well. And I think as we get closer to December, we will see more contract attrition as well. Mary Ellen Callahan, Assistant Secretary for DHS's Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, NIST researchers take on software supply chain questions. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You scarcely hear the word software these days without it followed by supply chain. It's one of the biggest topics in cybersecurity. How to best make sure the thousands of pieces of a software program add up to something safe. 
For an update on how to best think about the software supply chain security issue, I spoke with the Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, John Boyens. Our general guidance on cybersecurity supply chain risk management typically has covered both hardware, software, and services in general. It wasn't until a couple of years ago with the SolarWinds incident and the following Executive Order 14028 that really focused on software. So kind of at the same time, we were updating our special publication flagship, which is 800 Rev1, and we were able to address supply chain risk guidance in that publication specific to supply chain. We focus specifically on providing guidance for software bill of materials, open source software, enhanced vendor risk assessments, and vulnerability management. This was also the first time that we were able to move kind of left of center and move out into the development realm. And we developed a secure software development framework or special publication 800-218 that was very specific in providing guidance to software developers. And software development these days is very different from the concept people had maybe in the 80s where a new program was programmed by your programmers and everyone wrote different pieces of it and you compiled it into an application and there were all kinds of quality check automation programs back then. Now it's more like assembling pieces from various sources in a Lego fashion almost. You might get a brand new application, but it's made of standard Lego-like pieces, and that's changed how we have to deal with software because the supply chain is not simply that supplier, but that supplier's sources of the Lego blocks. Fair to say? That is very fair to say. The complexity is enormous right now. All right, so then that complicates the issue because do you have to look, I guess, in NIST's thinking at the corporate entities that supply these or at just the objects themselves? I think both. So I think it's key to go back to the old kind of blocking and tackling of risk management and it's knowing. It's knowing who the critical suppliers of that software is. It's knowing what software you have in your network the relationship between uh, the different technologies and software in that network and the uh, risk impacts that they could have. And that that was one of the the main things we saw in the solar wind incident a few years ago. So the recent thinking then is that you need a software bill of materials in order to understand the supply parts of the software. And this is part of Executive Order 14028, and there's been a lot of development and guidance on how to use SBOMs. In your experience, does the SBOM provided by your primary supplier in general include everything that it should? Well, right now, a lot of work is ongoing on SBOMs uh, out of DHS CISA. SBOMs have been around for 35 plus years in the software development field. You know, when they are developing a big software package and they're using third-party software, they usually get uh, the software bills of materials or component inventories, which is another name for them. But that's at the development stage, and there's usually non-disclosure agreements. SBOMs at the consumer phase are just fairly recently and still fairly nascent. So I would say that understanding the provenance of software, SBOMs are clearly where rubber hits the road. How 
However, organizations need the capability to both consume and proactively use those SBOMs. If they don't, then SBOMs merely become shelfware until there's an incident or known vulnerability. SBOMs are a critical piece of supply chain risk management, but they're not a silver bullet, and they require an organization to have a broader and deeper vulnerability management program established in order to really reap the benefits of SBOMs. We're speaking with John Boyens. He's Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Yes, that ability to operationalize or do something about what's in the SBOM, that's really crucial. Otherwise, yeah, we got an SBOM, and then you are complying with the need to get an SBOM, but actually not using it in an operational sense to make your organization more secure. That seems like a big bridge between compliance and actually doing something to ensure cyber security. It, it most certainly is. And, you know, out, outside of the software specific area, I don't know if supply chain risk management has really become a compliance measure, but definitely in the software space. Right. Well, what's your best advice then for agencies that want to get after the supply chain? I mean, I imagine in the federal acquisition space, there are limitations legally, statutorily, on the sources of software that can come into federal systems, but that doesn't mean it always happens. Right. And and similar to developing a vulnerability uh, management program, trying to conduct cybersecurity supply chain risk management, you know, in 800-161, we address the critical factors they go into this. And a lot of these are internal processes that a lot of organizations don't recognize yet, but we put them as key factors. And that's such things as developing a program management office, developing roles and responsibilities specific to supply chain, establishing supply chain information sharing mechanisms. And of course, I think that the key part is having a top-down direction and dedicated resources. Because without those dedicated resources, then only the bare minimum compliance pieces are going to get addressed. And what's your assessment of how agencies are doing? I mean, do they come to you with questions? I mean, NIST is always cited as the reference for what agencies say they're doing. What's your sense of how good the government is yet at using SBOMs and at getting after that supply chain conceptually? Well, right now, I think a lot of agencies are waiting for additional direction from OMB and DHS-CISA with regard to SBOMs and where they fit in. Again, it's still fairly nascent, so I don't think a lot of agencies have the capability to consume SBOMs. I mean, that's not writ large. There are some agencies that do, but it, it isn't across the board. Are there third-party sources that might be able to say, well, we'll look at your S-bombs for you and tell you where the dangers are? Yes, actually. And that, that's, you know, I mean, 10 years ago, I would say no. There were very few third-party vendors at all that really address supply chain, let alone the, the actual services they provide. That's changed quite a bit over the last few years. I'll say that the number of vendors has increased, although I would say that they've been more focused recently on supplier illumination and conducting due diligence on critical suppliers. That with a lot of, you know, with these executive orders and other items like SBOMs, those capabilities are expanding. So they are now offering 
you know, means for agencies to consume those SBOMs as, as well as broader vulnerability management functions. And a final question, is it probably good practice to ask your primary software t- supplier to look at its own library? I mean, for example, I, I knew a programmer many years ago who was programming coding, raw coding, communications protocols for a online company at the time. And it's likely that whatever that was that that coding resulted in a communications protocol how to connect was reused and reused in subsequent generations of the software corporate takeovers transfers so a lot of that code wasn't maliciously done but it was simply reused and reused and brought forward into new generations of software and so there might be some historical vulnerabilities built in is that something to be concerned with it is, and I think it's one of the, the toughest difficulties with open source software right now. So if there is a a corrupt piece of code in a, a library, it quite often gets reused over and over again. So that is one of the, the large initiatives by the administration to address open source software. We've provided some guidance in that, more in terms of consuming or purchasing open source software. But but definitely that is one of the biggest issues, particularly since most, if not all, proprietary software includes open source software. Sure. So you think we're making progress overall? I would say it's uh, three steps forward, two steps back. But I have seen a sustained effort and progress over the last few years. So I'm much more hopeful than I was 10 years ago. John Boyens is Deputy Chief of the Computer Security Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, small agency tech execs get some help juggling all of their big responsibilities. But first, this Air Force technologist has helped spread the Internet everywhere. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If one theme applies to the federal career of my next guest, it might be innovation. In both civilian and military situations, she's brought new technology and new approaches to mission support, Now she's been inducted into the National Academy of Public Administration. The Chief Information Officer of the Air Force Research Laboratory, Alexis Bunnell, joins me now. Ms. Bunnell, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. I think of the Air Force Research Laboratory as the conduit for the latest in technology for the Air Force. Let's begin with right now. What are some of the projects you're working on? What's at the top of the list right now? As you can imagine, digital and all of the innovation within it is absolutely paramount to our national security and to you know the paradigm that we find ourselves in the world globally. And so I have the distinct honor really of working not only across the Air Force Research Lab, you know, which means both Air Force and Space Force, which is incredible, right, to have a role where you get to work with two organizations. Um, but really our goal is to measurably accelerate and generate the transition, in essence, adoption-ready technology to demonstrate military benefits benefit and relevance. And so that could be everything from how we make better scientific discoveries in the area of hypersonics or satellites or cyber, all the way to just how do we reduce the toil so that our airmen and civilians are able to just be more effective and quite frankly, more passionate about their work every day. 
So there's a machine and a human aspect to this. Absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, I think that's really where we find ourselves in the world right now is that great kind of interconnection between our relationship with technology as humans. And you apparently like being a dweller on the latest, because let's go back to earlier in your career, back in the 90s, you were part of the Internet Trade Association. Tell us about that and what that was and what you learned there. First of all, it was really exciting. I, I joke with some people that I've been in the internet longer than they've had email accounts, right? And it's actually quite true. So, you know, back in the 90s, there was the Internet Trade Association. And, and really my job, which was so fascinating to reflect on now, Tom, was to go to places like Fortune 500 companies and kind of say, hey, there's this thing, the internet, and it's going to change how you do business. And one of the things I love to chuckle the most about right now is quite frankly, you know, early in that mission, not many people were interested. American Express and American Airlines, you know, they responded kind of saying, well, we think it's a fad. We don't really see how it's going to impact our business. And you can imagine just a short few months after that kind of being invited back, tell us more, right? Say more about this thing. It doesn't seem to be going away. So I think the great element of maybe cutting my teeth in that role is in some levels, you just become quite fascinated with what's next. Your curiosity engine really doesn't stop. And so I was lucky, I think, to come into a role where really kind of looking at Head and helping organizations and people kind of understand how is this relevant to me? What does this technology mean? And that translation is really probably my great joy. You could say the internet had as much effect on the airlines as the jet engine did, really, if you look at it. You know, Absolutely. Probably term. even more when we start looking at Christmas disruptions, right? Or, or the power of those things in our daily lives. And I guess let's go back even a further step. Tell us about the background that led to your being part of the Internet Trade Association. Sure. So, you know, what was really interesting is as I was growing up, my family business was in kind of direct marketing. And back in, you know, in the early 90s and 80s, as people will remember, we got things like catalogs, right, and mailers. And at that point in time, it was really quite sexy to be a brand advertiser, right, to have the Nike swoosh and to be kind of in that realm of communications and advertising. But what I think was a really interesting gift my dad gave me, you know, looking at direct marketing was this idea of, what does it look like to be able to test and measure, right, an interaction with someone, an appeal of something? And so that idea of being able to experiment, right, to see, did that get a response? Is that something that is going to drive a sale or a conversion really got me, I think, early hooked into this idea of being able to measure the impact of something or to understand the power of engagement. And so, you know, as the internet kind of emerged, it was like all of those things on steroids. It was like, okay, all of a sudden we can have a direct relationship. We can have a different relationship with information and knowledge and we can measure it. And I think that measurement becomes really powerful, whether you are a commercial company worried about selling things or whether you are, you know, a government hoping that a population is taking advantage of a benefit or service that you have. I think as good public leaders, we all want to understand is what we're doing having an impact. Can we measure it? And I think that was a little bit of where my roots came from. Interesting. Yes, you could never prove that someone actually laid their eyeballs on a printed page, but you could sure know if that website got clicked on. 
I know it changed my career a great deal when the economics of publishing changed. We're speaking with Jennifer Bunnell. She is the Chief Information Officer at the Air Force Research Laboratory, Director of its Digital Capabilities Directorate, and a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. And let's fast forward. You were at the U.S. Agency for International Development, and you were the uh, Premier Innovation Lab, Global Development Lab founder there. Tell us about yeah. that stop. Uh- Absolutely. I mean, what an incredible, you know, honor at the time, Uh, you know, the administration was really leaning into innovation across all levels. And of course, there had been entities like DARPA and many others that had deep history, but from an international development or diplomacy lens, there really hadn't been the same type of innovation focus and work. And so I, along with a number of colleagues at USAID, had the great privilege of kind of starting, you know, an innovation and science lab there, being able to really make USAID's mission permeable to science, to academia, to, you know, private sector partnerships. And quite frankly, it was such a wonderful exercise in what I would call humble curiosity, right? Being able to start with that moment of maybe we don't know everything, maybe we don't have all the solutions in government, and it would sure be neat to be able to match resources with that kind of collective global genius. And so in kicking off the development lab, it wasn't just an exercise in finding, funding, and deploying new ways of addressing education, you know, uh, democracy, health issues. It was also a journey of culture around how is it that we spread that humble curiosity? How is it that we make it more easy to work with us? for outside players. And um, it was just an honor to learn a lot along the way. That's a big issue. You know, you have been involved in dual-use technologies that have commercial and military application, but really the difficulty is not the application. It's convincing sometimes those companies, yes, you actually do want to do business with the Air Force or the Defense Department, and then they see what's involved there and maybe (laughs) second-guess you on it. Absolutely. I mean, and I think this is where it's exciting to be in a role like I get to serve in right now, because a lot of this is actually how do we make it easier, right? So, of course, there's larger questions on procurement and acquisition and how we move those resources, which a number of my colleagues are really advancing as far as programs like AppWorks and others. But for me, it's also a question of how do we participate with knowledge together, right? And so putting together digital structures where we can share research data, where we can collaborate more easily, right, with players that may not have, you know, securely, but with players that might not have the access to some of our internal networks, et cetera. And so really thinking about that challenge of how do we maintain all the security elements that we obviously need, but how do we just make it easier, you know, again, to collaborate? And that's where I think a lot of the tools we have now are just at a fundamentally different place than they were even a few years ago. So it's quite neat to see our interaction with allies and other things growing. And your bio mentions a lot of units besides the Air Force Research Laboratory. There's well-known names now in the Defense Innovation Enterprise, if you want to call it that. AFWorks, you mentioned Kessel Run, Naval X, Marine Innovation Unit, Army Futures Command. It goes on and on and on. DARPA. Is there any mechanism among that network, I guess it's an informal network, to make sure you're not duplicating effort? Oh, goodness. I think, you know, the first is just having that network of other human beings who tick and who really want to kind of be on that exploratory edge and quite frankly, learning from each other. I think that there are certainly informal networks. There's formal networks like Federal Innovation Council and others that I've gotten to participate in and I'm lucky enough to sit in now. 
I think that this is something though, where in some ways it's really interesting, right? Because we don't want to duplicate. But what I tend to find is that often there's a slightly different flavor or a slightly different focus that we might be doing that seems at the top level of the definition to be duplicative. But when you get down to it, it might be, well, I'm looking at that technology, for example, for a multi-security level, and you might be looking at it you know, from a different lens. So I think what's really exciting is again that ability to bring in those collaborators those discoverers researchers principal investigators to be part of a community that has that conversation and i know when i have gotten the great privilege of kind of working or contributing to any of those groups sometimes the most interesting conversation is how is it that we function as people? What are their tricks around culture or around administration or resourcing that actually advance each other's work even more than a particular discovery? It seems like the trend in a lot of the innovation, and you can say this of artificial intelligence, is not to try to replace the human with some robotic. In the military, they don't envision that ever happening, actually, but really to augment what the people the precious commodity, the hard-to-acquire-and-maintain commodity, which is the service members, enabling them to do more with surrounding augmentation technologies. Well, Tom, and I actually love the fact that you use the word augmentation because AI, you know, being able to spend some time at Google as well, AI was a definite geek out area for me. It's one of my big areas of passion, but specifically because I think what AI does, and I wish it was called augmented intelligence instead of artificial. So maybe you and I can, can start a trend on that. But it really is, um, you know, kind of the next level of technology that just ultimately changes our relationship with knowledge. And knowledge and interacting with knowledge is a human journey we've been on for a long time. It's one we'll continue to be on. But what I always tell people as an example with AI in particular, and, and I you know, had previously kind of donated a lot of time to AI 101 classes for leaders and others, because it's important that we understand the relationship with the technology. But one of the great examples that I found really useful as I started to think about the technology is I think about you know, AI or augmenting my intelligence, you know, and it's an example with some of the generative AI tools, almost a little bit like having a really great intern, meaning or, or a thousand great interns, right, where I might kind of say, hey, I'm interested in this, go collect this information for me, right, surface this knowledge, bring it to me. But it's not like I would take that, you know, not read it, throw my logo on it and, and send it outside. Like any great experience with knowledge, I'm going to take that in. I'm going to see, does it resonate with my expertise and my experience, right? I might hone, you know, it. but that process of curation of knowledge, I think, is really what is an exciting thing to be confronted with. And the reality is that as humans, these are tools that do what we tell them to do with the information we tell them to use. And so that business of curation, that business of knowledge, I think, is a really exciting place to be. And the technology is only letting us ask bigger questions now. And a final question. You have served in some challenging areas of the world as a practitioner of technology. So in some sense, you've got a chance to really taste the importance, if you will, and the criticality of defense technologies and, and innovative ways of getting things done in rough parts of the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, quite frankly, 
I've been I've been shot. I've lost colleagues to uh, cafe bombings and kidnappings and incursions and have been there in places like Afghanistan, Iraq and many other challenging locations. And so for me, this ability to serve not only at AFRL, but to be a public servant is a very intimate and full, you know, fully meaningful and powerful opportunity to contribute not only to, you know, the incredible people out there right now who are risking their lives and standing up for our nation's values, but even more importantly to the people that I have lost along the way, right, in service to those missions. And so it's, it's just a deep honor to be able to find ways to continue to serve their memories and the people who are doing this every day. Alexis Bonnell is the Chief Information Officer at the Air Force Research Laboratory and Director of its Digital Capabilities Directorate, and she's a new inductee to the National Academy of Public Administration. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, small agency tech execs get some help juggling all of their responsibilities. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. When we need help, we turn to government. When government needs help, they turn to Federal News Network. For news on the federal pay raise. To learn how other agencies handle IT modernization. To see how Congress funds my agency. For changes to my TRICARE benefits. Federal News Network, helping feds meet their mission. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission or the U.S. Institute of Peace might be relatively small, but they're held to the same technology policies and laws as the big agencies. Often the challenge for small agencies is how to meet FISMA, FATARA, and the litany of other alphabet soup of requirements without the money or staffing enjoyed by the big agencies. Well, now there's a new guide to help out. Federal News Network's Jason Miller talked about it with the Chief Information Officer of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, Chris Chilbert. You don't get a pass being a small agency uh, when it comes to cybersecurity threats, right? So the threats that the large agency face are the same threats that the small agencies face. The sensitivity of the the data that you're handling is often just as sensitive personal information, potentially personal health information, things like that. So you still have the same responsibilities. So coming into the, the role, what, are the, what the handbook does is it lays out a lot of the, the things that you need to be thinking about uh, when you take that job. And, and it poses a lot of things uh, in terms of questions to ask yourself to help design a plan to figure out right, what, what do I need to focus on first, right? Because, again, if you're, if you're walking into one of these roles, even if you did have a technology background, often it's going to be in one specific discipline. And so this helps provide a, a, a greater sense of what the breadth of things you need to be thinking about and helping, helping you put together a plan to be able to, to deal with those things. Did you find as you started to run through this, there were specific holes or challenges that small agency CIOs face beyond the, the ones we know about, right? Resources, maybe a smaller staff size, skilled, but, but you know, if you have five people to do cyber, USDA, Interior, Commerce may have 20 or 40 people. And that, that makes a big difference even, even size. Or, or did you just try to start at the beginning and say, the God created the Klinger-Cohen Act, and then we went from there? I think it was a little bit of both, right? So when we initially were brainstorming about what to do, and I, and I actually should also call out the fact that we got a lot of support from this from, uh, from GSA, so the Office of Government-Wide Policy under Tom Santucci and Karen Balsa. When we were talking about it, we thought it would be a lot smaller guide. 
And, and then we started reaching out to some of the folks that are part of the small agency community and, and you know, ask them what are the things that they're facing. And so we tried to base it off what, what, are, the, what are the issues that people are struggling with or have questions on or, and trying to deal with, and then use that to help guide the development of the overall handbook. And I'll give Tom Santucci full credit there. I think that's where I saw he posted it on LinkedIn. And I'll just have to – I'll nitpick at you, okay? There's no sure. date on it. I didn't know if this was a brand new one or if this was being posted like, oh, this was done in 2010 and we're posting it again as a good reminder. So I'll just nitpick at you a little bit. Is that yeah, okay? Yeah, so that's absolutely fine. And, <laughs> and it's in, no, this is a it – was, it was conceived of last summer, I think. And you know, with, we put it together over a very relatively short period of time. So again, a lot of a lot of input from various leaders, small agency CIOs. Uh, they they sat down for interviews with the with the uh, OGP team, and you know provided some feedback as we you know created a few different drafts, and and then we uh, you know, completed it around last January or so. So it was it was done within probably one quarter, uh, really quickly. And then give me a reason to reach out to you as well, because I think I saw your name at the bottom, or, or you were one of the authors. You and your the co-chairman is uh, the gentleman from OMB. Yeah, Tony McDonald. Yep. So I uh, appreciate the fact that you're able to give me a reason to, for us to sit down and, and catch up again. One of the things that when you talked about what the challenges were, when you got the feedback, offer me some of those things that stood out to you. Were you anything you were surprised by? You were at a large agency. You've now at a small agency, so you've seen both sides of the coin. I think that one of the things I, was, I wasn't was expecting to see or was a little bit surprised by, but it makes sense as I thought about it, was people were asking for some more guidance around leadership and leading a technology, a large technology team. So, again, some folks came out of like the business side of IT, as you said, or from a more of a, a business function. Some came out of a very specific uh, area of technology and didn't have the full breadth. And so they were asking, how do I create a vision for a technology team? And how do I put together a roadmap for the things I want to do? And so we did spend some time thinking about what are, how do we help people develop as a leader? Because this is, again, m- many times their first significant leadership position. Um, not to say that in a, in a functional leadership isn't big, but this is a, probably the, the, a bigger leadership role with a lot more uh, breadth to the scope of it. And many times, and maybe I'll ask you to wait and put your other hat on from CFPB, you're meeting with the leadership of that agency very often. You're meeting with the chairman or the director or whatever their titles are versus if you're the CIO at EPA, you may not meet with the EPA administrator, but monthly or or biweekly or, you know, kind of less often just because of the size of the agency and how busy and the number of direct reports. Is is that true? Is that that part of this that you're managing differently? Absolutely. So in a small agency, you're very much closer to that mission. So you're dealing with the, really closely with the folks that are delivering the mission on a day-to-day basis as well as the other executives across that organization. And the expectations that you have deep knowledge across the board are, are pretty significant, right? And so, again, at a, at a large agency, you, when, I've, when I've been working there, you have executive leadership in different functional roles that you can rely on for some of that depth. In this case, uh, in any in any small agency, you're going to be deal with, dealing with the, the top leadership on a, on a fairly regular basis and, and providing recommendations to them. When you look at some of the priorities of the, this administration, actually previous administrations, regardless of um, the party, technology is a big part of that and providing a good a customer experience to the citizens of the country is, is in, in that, and the expectations are increasing. So that's that's part of it as well. Just again, I'll ask you put your CFPB hat on. Do you meet with the commissioners or, or how often? And 
is it weekly, monthly, daily? And, and, and do you get questions that maybe you wouldn't expect it to get if you were a large agency CIO in some ways? I don't have a regular check-in. We, we do check in uh, with the director on a you know, fairly regular basis. It's not, it's not a set schedule. The deputy director deal with a lot much, much more often because the deputy director is more uh, related in, involved in the, the day-to-day operations of the organization. That said, in a small agency, you have to always be ready for someone reaching out. So the, you know, the director, if they have, the director has a question, they'll reach out directly via Teams or via or email. Uh, that wouldn't happen at a very large agency. You're not gonna you're not gonna hear from the top out of the blue. So that's something that could happen to you. And so you have to be ready for things like that. It sounds very similar to, to the deputy secretary of these large agencies. They commonly called the COO, chief operating officer. It sounds very similar to yeah, correct. Yeah. So when you talk about leadership, what were some of those? What, what advice did you decide to come up with? It can sometimes be. Very simple, straightforward, and people go, well, no, duh. Thanks, Chris. You told right. me to be a leader and, and have conversations. And But what, is it different for a small agency? Is there any anything that you guys, as you put together this handbook, said, hey, this is maybe something that folks don't do enough of or could do more of and they maybe don't think about it in, in the same way? I mean, we didn't get into some basic leadership principles. I mean, some of it, you know, obviously, I mean, people take leadership courses, things like that. When you specifically apply that, though, to what are the expectations of you as a CIO to be a leader, to create a vision, and then, you know, walking through the different aspects of a technology organization and then thinking about how do it when, when you say, hey, it's, it's easy to say, hey, go create a vision for your technology organization, what you want to do. Uh, we tried to take that to the next level and say, okay, what questions do I need to ask myself and what, what questions do I need to ask our partners in the business side of the organization in order to, to create a coherent vision and then create a plan to actually implement that vision and, and things like that. So we tried to give people very specific guidance and ways of thinking about going about doing that. And so it wasn't just starting out fresh and, and you know, having that very general guidance, like you said, hey, yeah, just it's easy to do. Just uh, go be a, a fantastic leader. Chris Chilbert is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Chief Information Officer and Co-Chairman of the Small Agency CIO Council. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find more episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. Federal facilities in Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi will get cleaner electricity pretty soon. Utility provider Southern Company will offer carbon-free electricity to federal facilities in those states. On Tuesday, General Services Administration head Robin Carnahan signed an agreement with Southern Company CEO Chris Womack. It's the fourth such agreement between the government and a utility. The goal, carbon-free electricity for federal operations by 2030. GSA's Elliot Dooms of the Public Building Service opened the ceremonies. Good morning. It's great to be here with you today for this very important signing ceremony. My name is Elliot Dooms, and while I'm new to the position of the Public Building Service Commissioner, I've been working with GSA and PBS issues for nearly 20 years uh, in Congress. Uh, But while I've been here, I've seen tremendous strides by both GSA, PBS, and partner organizations like the Southern Company, that have made in sustainability and green energy solutions over the past many years. Since 2008, GSA has reduced greenhouse gas emissions from our own buildings by more than a million metric tons annually. And we've reduced these emissions by more than 51%, more than a decade ahead of schedule. The roadmap that this MOU lays out furthers the work being done to reach these goals industry-wide. And I'm proud to be a part of the process. So thank you, Mr. Mayock, 
Ms. Jacobson, Mr. Womack, and others here for your work and dedication on this important issue. It is now my honor to introduce GSA's administrator and a true champion for sustainability issues, Administrator Robin Carnahan. Thank you, Elliot, Andrew, Ms. Jacobson, Chris, thank you so much for being here. You know, President Biden is deeply committed to meeting this important moment. Wants to invest in America, wants to create good jobs, wants to reduce costs for taxpayers by lowering energy uh, consumption, and of course, uh, wants to make the planet healthier for our families. He set ambitious targets for us to uh, have net zero buildings in our portfolio by 2045, and part of getting there is having clean, carbon-free electricity in our buildings. And our goal is to do that by 2030. That's seven years from now. So these are very, very ambitious goals, but we know it's going to have a very significant impact on the marketplace uh, because the federal government is the single biggest consumer of electricity in the country. Now, GSA, we know we can show what's possible. We know that because of this buying power, we can we can show uh, market, we can help shape markets, we can help accelerate the expansion of carbon-free electricity and to make our grids more resilient. Because we're, we're responsible for 370 million square feet of office space, the largest fleet of vehicles in the country at about a half a million, and buy over $80 billion worth of goods and services every year. So the sustainable investments that we make we know are going to be a triple win. They're that win for good jobs in America, a win for reducing costs for taxpayers, and a win for the planet. So we are, Chris, steady long-term customers uh, of you and other utilities around the country, and we want to partner uh, with more and do these kind of signings that we're going to be doing today. These are smart for all kinds of reasons. They create demand for clean energy. They help catalyze innovation and new products. Uh, and they certainly bolster the resilience of grids across the country. This is going to be the fourth MOU that we have signed uh, with utilities. The first was with Entergy Arkansas. But we've also signed with Xcel Energy, covering Minnesota, Michigan, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin, as well as with Pepco uh, here in the District of Columbia. So we are very excited to add uh, Southern Company's uh, surface area. Uh, we know that we, we buy a lot of uh, power there. Uh, we're going to hear a little bit from uh, our friends from the Defense Department. Uh, but we have, uh, they, are, they are the biggest, we were just discussing this, your biggest customer is standing right here. Um, and, wants, and wants carbon-free electricity. And so, yes, well, we're, we're going to be buying a lot, uh, but we appreciate that your commitment, your company's commitment to carbon-free electricity and reaching net zero by 2050, um, that is the kind of partner we want to have. Folks who, where we are aligned on the mission, uh, we buy over, so we have about 7.5 million square feet of office space in your area. Uh, in Atlanta, in uh, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, so we expect to be good partners with you. Um, I will say that I've been in and out of government for a long time, um, and I have never seen this kind of collaboration. You don't always see GSA and the Defense Department standing next to each other asking for the same thing. 
we're talking about really trying to move markets and to be smart about the way we, we consolidate our demand to make it easier to be able to meet uh, our carbon-free needs. So I, 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 I want everybody to understand these goals are big, but they are not a pipe dream. We are on our way to getting this done. GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan. You also heard from Elliot Dooms of the Public Building Service. After the event, Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric spoke with Southern Company CEO and President Chris Womack and with GSA's Carnahan. Well, it's, it is an ambitious goal that the president has set, and it's uh, to have 24-7, which means you want it matched to what's produced on that grid. Right, so if we're in in Georgia, we want to be able to have carbon-free electricity that's produced on that grid that we're buying for our federal buildings. So, what it's going to take to get there is partnerships just like this, where we're working closely with utility companies that can bring new CFE online, that can let us have access to CFE they already have, uh, and to figure out ways to make our buildings more efficient. And how is the partnership with Southern Utility helping with that? So Southern's been a terrific partner for years, not just with GSA, but also with the Defense Department. Um, We've done a lot already on building efficiency, uh, but plan to do this new process where we can get carbon-free electricity, as I said, 100% for our government buildings by 2030. I don't know if you have anything that you want to add to that. It's a wonderful partnership. This is a wonderful collaboration with the federal government to find ways to bring online more carbon-free resources. Southern Company is committed to sustainability. Southern Company is committed to a grid that's net zero by 2050. And so we're finding ways to bring more renewable resources onto our grid, making investments in new research and development, looking at new technologies, doing all these things in collaboration with our customers. And when you do that, that's how we come forth with solutions that meets their objectives but also supports the objectives of our company. So this is an exciting day. This is an exciting collaboration with the federal government as we move forward to make greater investments in renewable resources and carbon-free energy. And how are partnerships, whether between different agencies in the federal government or with utility partners, important to helping accomplish this goal? The government can lead by example because we've got these big facilities. We're one of the biggest buyers of power in the country. And so if we can do it, it means others can do it as well. And so we can be kind of first movers in helping um, shape what's called green tariffs in some of these communities. And once those get done, other companies can buy off those and other people can buy off them. And so ultimately this is about creating good jobs here in the United States, reducing costs for taxpayers because we're reducing our energy costs, creating more resilient grids, and making the planet healthier for our kids. So it's just a triple win across the board, and we're going to keep doing more of it. Can you explain what you mean by green tariffs? So um, if if people want to buy a certain type of power, I maybe should let you talk about yeah. this. Um, I mean, it's the opportunity to, to, to have rate structures and, and, and pricing options in place that incentivize you to bring renewable resources onto the grid. And so as customers des- have this desire, that's one pricing mechanism and, and rate mechanism that provides that incentives for companies to make sure those kind of resources are, in fact, available. So those things also, they, they provide incentives. And so there's more work to do to bring forth more more green resources, more sustainable resources, more carbon resources onto our grid. There's more research and development that has to happen. But having the opportunity to do that with our largest customers, we have the opportunity then to to, to do different things, to, to, to have incentives, to, to have these kind of collaborations that will motivate and incent us 
to to make those kind of investments. So this is a win-win for the company. It's a win-win for for our customer, and it's and it's good good for the country and good for the globe. So there's just so many positives that will come out of this collaboration with the government that I think you'll see as we go forward. Southern Company CEO and President Chris Womack, and you also heard from GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan. Speaking with Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. Check out Kirsten's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. <music>